A note to listeners, this episode contains adult content. It's a Sunday morning, July 1923. Bernie Gimble and Horace Sachs gaze out the train window as fields whiz by. They're heading back to New York City after a weekend together with their families on the Jersey Shore. Horace is the 41-year-old president of Saxon Company, a department store for fashionable clothing, situated on Herald Square, right between Macy's and Gimbel's, the store that became synonymous with fashionable and gracious living. He wears a tall fedora and a bespoke suit. He looks cool and collected, but he's in a jam. Bernie, you know we want to build another, more upscale store on Fifth Avenue uptown, right? Yes, we've talked about it. Have you figured out a way to pay for it? That's exactly the problem. If I don't get capital quick, it won't happen. And without a more high-end store, well, Bernie, Saks won't be able to compete with you guys and Macy's. We'll go down. Some might be relieved that a competitor might fold. But Bernie's concerned. True, Saks is his competitor right across the street. But he and Horace are close. They commute together, golf together... Their families vacation together. Bernie doesn't want Horace's business to fail. Bernie puts his head in his hands and thinks about his friend's predicament. Horace fiddles with his pocket watch, a bit embarrassed by his own plight. Bernie looks around the train car and then motions to Horace to lean closer. Horace, Horace, I have a proposal for you, but I see a half a dozen Wall Street guys in this car. I don't want anyone to catch wind of this, okay? Follow me. Bernie and Horace grab their weekend bags from the overhead racks and head to the next car over. It's a freight wagon. Crates line the walls. And sitting in the middle of the car is a shiny mahogany coffin. The two note the coffin and exchange looks. Oh, come on, Horace. Why not? Eh, Sure. Not like anyone here is going to talk. With nowhere else to sit, the friends park themselves on the coffin and hammer out a merger that makes sense for both of them. The deal means Horace gets the cash to open Sachs' new and even more opulent shop at 50th Street and 5th Avenue. And by buying Sachs, Gimbel's not only doubles the square footage of its stores, but it also gets a cut of Sachs' profits. The two men hope that by offering both Gimbel's Bargain Products and Saks Tony merchandise, they can capture customers at both ends of the market and lure them away from Macy's. But while Horace and Bernie are happy with this merger, their families are not. Gimbel's took the company public just a year ago, raising millions in capital. The older, risk-averse generation of Gimbel's wanted to use that money to update existing stores. The Sachs family worries the down-market gimbals from provincial Philadelphia will tarnish Sachs' elite reputation. And if this new, even posher Sachs Fifth Avenue store flops, well, Bernie and Horace will go down in history as the knuckleheads who killed off two of the biggest American merchant dynasties with a harebrained scheme, hatched atop a coffin on a train. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, 
Get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, Macy's built a department store in Manhattan's up-and-coming Herald Square. Eight years later, Gimbel saw Macy's bat and raised it by building an even bigger place just one block away. Now, at the height of the Roaring Twenties, fashion-crazed flappers and a surging stock market spur spending. Profits for high-end retail stores are soaring. Women flush with money flock to Saks for its upscale beaded dresses and jewelry. That leaves Macy's and Gimbel's to fight for the remaining cash-strapped shoppers, whose loyalties go to whoever offers the cheapest prices. But these retail dynasties are about to be tested by war and a market crash, putting those unprepared for change on course for disaster. This is Episode 4, Diversify or die. It's a blustery September morning in 1924, but that doesn't stop well-to-do women from flocking to the grand opening of Saks Fifth Avenue on 50th Street in Manhattan. Shoppers in fur coats and pearls crowd the aisles. Suddenly, a group of excited women rush for the elevators. Bemused, Bernie Gimble watches the scene from a quiet corner. He spots Horace Sachs and crosses the sales floor to congratulate him on the turnout. Horace, quite a showing. What's all the excitement about over there? Oh, someone started a rumor that the Prince of Wales is in the men's department on the fourth floor. What will they come up with next? Bernie has been to enough grand openings for a lifetime, but he never gets tired of a good wager, just to keep things interesting. Hey, Horace. See all those raccoon coats in aisle three? Yes, what about them? Well, I bet you $20 they'll be sold out by noon. What do you say? Horace chuckles and pretends to check his wallet. Okay, Bernie, but I'm betting that if anything sells out, it'll be those sterling silver flasks on the center display. Who doesn't need a commemorative Saks Fifth Avenue hip flask to tide you over till you get to the local bar? <laughs> Bernie's belly laugh echoes in the Saks atrium. A group of women turn their perfectly coiffed heads around in unison and stare. Bernie waves. Hello, ladies. 
The women smile and wave back flirtatiously. Some recognize him from the society pages of the papers. Bernie often hobnobs with New York royalty. A few hours later, Horace wins the bet. The flasks are gone, and the Prince of Wales is a no-show. Horace pockets his 20 and walks his friend to the door. Thanks for coming, Bernie. You know, you know, maybe it is all going to work out. Bernie will look back wistfully on that day. Less than a year later, Horace discovers a boil on his cheek. A common enough ailment in the 1920s, but an infection quickly sets in. Within 24 hours, Horace Sachs is dead. The loss devastates Bernie. He's also in a fix. How will he run Sachs without Horace's superb management sense? Taking yet another gamble after buying Sachs, Bernie puts Sachs' vice president in charge of the whole eight-story Fifth Avenue store. And that VP is his cousin, Adam Gimbel, who's just 32 years old. Bernie isn't convinced that Adam is up to the job, but he's in the family business. At Yale, Adam studied architecture, history, and design, but he's a gambler just like his cousin, Bernie. Adam is a reluctant convert to retail, but he's about to take Sachs in a whole new direction. It's 1925, and Adam Gimbel walks into the Park Avenue design studio of his good friend, Paul T. Frankel. Adam, come in! Come in! I have something I want to show you. Adam follows Paul, who stops in front of one of his newest designs, which many clients find too strange. Adam visited the Paris Exposition of Art and Design and returned home excited by what he saw. Paul's work is an expression of that. Paul gestures toward a cabinet made of black lacquered wood with metallic trim. The base looks like a very modern cabinet with what looks like sleek bookcases rising up side by side but of varying heights. Adam walks around it, staring appreciatively. He's silent, concentrating. Hmm. Paul, maybe I'm crazy, but uh, that looks like a skyscraper. Paul does a little hopping dance and claps his hands in mock joy. You get it! I knew you would! Adam more than gets it. He's besotted by Paul's design. The organic curves and streamlined look of Art Deco are enthralling. Such a contrast to the staid, old-fashioned design and architecture Americans seem to prefer. You know what, Paul? I think Sachs should look more like this. We shouldn't just go for elegance. We should aim for the extraordinary. That's what people on Fifth Avenue want. Adam Gimbel doesn't waste any time. He rips out the plain merchandising counters Horace Sachs installed and remakes the store in an opulent white and chrome palette with an open floor plan, sweeping lines, and sumptuous velvet sofas. He hires some of New York's finest young artists to create Art Deco screens, furnishings, and futuristic window displays. He also increases sales volume by turning the store's upper floors into luxury specialty shops, including an ultra-exclusive dress salon to promote his wife's creations. It's called Sophie of Sachs. Her elegant gowns become the go-to look for New York's It Girls. Over the course of the next two years, Sachs Fifth Avenue becomes the most profitable luxury specialty chain in the country. Adam's cousin, Bernie Gimbel, is thrilled. 
But the Strauss brothers over at Macy's have caught the Art Deco wave, too. Department stores are no longer just about merchandise. They're about teaching America's consumers good taste. So, Macy's ups the ante. In 1927, Macy's hosts an exposition of art in trade featuring 100 exhibitors of Art Deco pottery, glass, textiles, books, and furniture. By the end of the week, Macy's introduces the avant-garde aesthetic to 50,000 people. Macy's is fighting back. Not only is it trying to keep a grip on its own customers, but it has figured out a way to poach some of Saks Fifth Avenue's upscale customers. To make their merchandise more appealing to luxury shoppers, the Strauss brothers sprinkle in fashionable items among Macy's simpler and less expensive in-house brands. One afternoon in 1927, women in fur coats rifle through Macy's racks. Because even the wealthy love a bargain. A pair of women are delighted by the treasure hunt. One of them pulls a pink blouse from the rack and checks the price tag. Sally, look at this silk blouse. I sought the same thing at Saks for much more money. Oh, that's fabulous. Such attention to detail. Hey, grab a blue one for me, would you? The two women look around for a sales clerk to begin the payment process. Typically, the invoices and payments are put in metal capsules. The pneumatic tubes using compressed air propel the capsules to the basement, where the transaction is completed. But all that takes time. To speed up the process, Macy's has done away with all that. Now, clerks conveniently ring up customers right there on the sales floor. And to make doubly sure shoppers take notice of the changes, the Strauss brothers hire a secret weapon. It's March 1928 on 34th Street in Manhattan. Macy's copywriter Bernice Fitzgibbon is on her way back from lunch. She's tall and hugely pregnant. Her navy maternity dress billows in the spring breeze. While Bernice waits at a light on the corner of Broadway and 35th, she notices a chauffeur in a long black town car turning into Macy's underground garage entrance. In the back seat of the limo is a woman in a mink coat. She looks as if she were rich enough to be a Rockefeller. The scene kicks Bernice's creative impulses into high gear. She's been trying to come up with a slogan for the store, something about how Macy's is full of bargains but isn't cheap anymore. It has a lot of fancy merchandise, too. The light changes several times as Bernice watches the car disappear, but she doesn't notice because slogans are racing through her mind. Maybe it's frugal to shop at Macy's. Eh, no, frugal is an ugly word. Bernice's grandmother used to say thrifty to mean thriving, like my geraniums are thrifty. All of a sudden, the perfect slogan snaps into place. She hurries as fast as her swollen feet can take her into Macy's. She bursts into her boss's office. She flops down in a chair in front of her boss's desk, breathless. I've got it. I've got it. He raises his eyebrows. She leans forward, beaming. It's smart to be thrifty. That slogan becomes an overnight sensation. It's everywhere, on billboards, newspapers, and benches. And it's just one of her many slogans that lure women by droves into Macy's. If Bernice Fitzgibbon is Macy's secret weapon, 
then radio broadcasting is the company's most public one. In the early days of radio, these in-house store stations become the first models of commercial broadcasting. Radio shows are designed to attract an audience, but their main purpose is to promote sales. And they target women. By the early 1920s, Gimbel's has four studios. In 1929, Macy's jumps on the bandwagon. Macy's station, WOR, airs classical orchestra music and cooking shows. Once every weekday, it hosts a Macy's quiz show. The show's questions are designed to publicize the company's extremely exacting quality control standards and its product safety lab, which Macy's calls the Bureau of Standards. So all the questions focus on the science behind the store merchandise. You can get gorgeous hair without falling behind schedule. Don't worry about the little ones or that pie in the oven. Thanks to an extra-long extension cord, you can move around while primping your locks. Forget those long trips to the salon and no more waiting for hours under monster machines. Alvanche gives you an easy and speedy hairdo that will blow your man away. Get it now at your nearest Macy's. You're tuned to WOR. Welcome to the Consumer Quiz Club of the Air, brought to you by Macy's. Playing today's quiz, it's Evelyn Shilton of Brooklyn, Sally Knight of Morristown, New Jersey, and Joanne Lunt of Manhattan. Welcome, ladies. Evelyn, Sally, and Joanne, your first question is, what is rayon? Evelyn's hand shoots up. Evelyn, what's your guess? I know, I know. It's a man-made fiber from cotton or trees. Uh, chestnut, I... No, 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 no. I mean spruce. And we have a winner. Well done. Well done indeed. Fun fact from our Bureau of Standards scientists. Thomas Edison used the first rayon fibers in his light bulb filaments. Radio saves both department stores hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in print advertising costs and expands their customer base. But they're just one way to grab attention. The 20s are a time of excess for the whole country, including Macy's and Gimbel's. As both companies open up new stores, they ratchet up the competition with mind-boggling spectacles, annual holiday parades, in-store golf tournaments, and wild exhibitions. Step right up this way to see P.T. Barnum's legendary bearded lady. Bernie Gimbel takes the pageantry to the next level. On the sixth floor, arriving patrons are welcomed by a life-size talking model of the famous showman P.T. Barnum, founder of Barnum & Bailey Circus. Close by is a 14-foot-long replica of a white whale that spouts real water when you push a button. Among the many odd displays, papier-mâché models of Tom Thumb and Barnum's infamous bearded lady. But Lee Gimbel, a fourth-generation member of the store's founding family and its VP, is underwhelmed by all this. He has friends on Wall Street who've become millionaires overnight. He wants to be a stockbroker like them and ride the money-gushing wave of the stock market. In 1929... Lee quits his job at the family company. He's inherited $100,000, or about $1.5 million in today's dollars, and uses most of it to buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. His friends made fortunes doing this. He figures he can too. Ten months later, the market crashes. 
families around the country will suffer catastrophic losses and the gimbals will not be spared. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's late afternoon on New Year's Eve, 1930, in Midtown Manhattan. The skies are overcast. Lee Gimble's room on the 16th floor of the Yale Club is growing dark, but he doesn't switch on a light. He swings his bare feet off the bed onto the floor and takes a swig of bootleg whiskey straight from a bottle. Old Bushmills. He's so drunk he's muttering to himself. Only the best for a Gimble. Here's to you, Dad. May you rest in peace. He pins a two-sentence note on club stationery. He laments that his usual optimism cannot hold up to the pessimism afflicting humankind. He writes, The world has become a very sad place to live in. The note is addressed to those who may be investigating. At 4 p.m., Lee Gimble puts on his best wingtip shoes. Hornberg hat and cashmere topcoat and stumbles to the window. He climbs up on the windowsill and then leaps to his death. Lee Gimble was just 35. He leaves behind his wife and four-year-old daughter. Lee's suicide brings the Gimble family to its knees. They've only just buried Lee's father. Bernie was close to both men and blames himself for not doing more for his nephew, Lee, after he lost his father and his fortune. Bernie feels like the family is falling apart under the strain of the Depression. The only bright spot for the Gimbals is Adam's work with Saks Fifth Avenue. By the end of the 1930s, Adam has opened 10 branches of Saks, and they are big moneymakers for Gimbal Brothers Incorporated. And Gimbals also has a dark horse it's Fred Gimble, Bernie's brother, who heads up merchandising operations. Fred's known as the Playboy Gimble. And he's about to discover a swanky new partner to class up the family business. It's 1940, and Fred is peering into glass jewelry cases at Marcus & Company, 
a Manhattan store known for luxury jewelry designed with the utmost skill and imagination. A salesman approaches Fred. Is there something in particular you're looking for? Show me something special for a young lady. Certainly, sir. I believe this piece is extraordinary. The jeweler pulls out a pendant designed by a French miniature portraitist. It costs $20,000. Fred picks it up by its chain. As it dangles, the inset gems catch the light. This is really something. And I should know I'm in the business. The clerk barely feigns interest. You're in the jewelry business. What's your company? Uh, Retail. I have a little store on Herald Square. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Gimbal's. Fred can't see the clerk smirk as he leans over the case and busies himself rearranging bracelets in the display case. Ah, I see. That's why you're shopping here, for a real piece of jewelry. Fred smiles at the remark. He can appreciate a good burn. He buys the pendant. It's a pretty straightforward transaction, but it makes an impression on Fred. But both Fred and Bernie know things have to change if Gimbel's truly wants to challenge Macy's, which now stocks more expensive and fashionable merchandise. In 1940, Gimbel's only successful fashion department is women's housecoats. The brothers put their heads together and come up with a plan. Fred hasn't forgotten that moment at the jewelry counter in Marcus and Company, and with the Depression, times are tough. Businesses are merging to survive. A year after Fred bought that piece of jewelry for his arm candy, Marcus and Company agrees to let plain old middle-class gimbals sell some of its luxury line. Suddenly, it's possible to buy an antique brooch set with emeralds and gimbals on Herald Square. Gimbals has risen from being the palace of trade in dusty Vincennes, Indiana, to one of the premier department stores in Manhattan. On the next episode, War Looms on the Horizon, Gimbals has prepared to profit from it. Macy's has not, and then makes another blunder. It lets its secret weapon, virtuoso copywriter Bernice Fitzgibbons, slip through its fingers. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. In this episode, we discuss Lee Gimbel's depression and suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-273-8255 in the United States. The National Alliance on Mental Illness is available at 1-800-950-6264. Additional resources are available in our show notes. All you have to do is tap or swipe over the cover art. We invite you to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to support our show by supporting our sponsors. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. And tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Barbara Bogave wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor with editing by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall for Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.
Looking for the hottest takes and the spiciest celebrity gossip? Look no further. Welcome to Rich and Daily, the all-new podcast from Wondery that's going to bring you up to speed on all of Hollywood's most current secrets and scandals. Need to know what Harry and Meghan are up to? What's the latest in Britney's conservatorship hearing? We've got you covered. I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams, and along with my bestie and fellow celeb news fanatic, Brooke Sifrin, we're bringing you the latest entertainment gossip every Monday through Friday. Is that rumor you heard about Rihanna true? If it is, you better believe we'll have something to say about it. So if you want to be in the know about who's been seen with whom and who's in and who's out, join us on Rich and Daily, because we don't just listen to the rumor mill. We give you the celebrity facts as they happen. Listen to Rich and Daily on Amazon Music, or you can listen to episodes ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. With Rich and Daily, feel the gossip. Wondery, feel the story.